This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us this time in my apartment in Berlin again. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So this week we're only going to be doing one data point, and that is 143% which was the rate of inflation shortly before Argentina's election in late October. That election produced a new president for the country, Javier Malay, who will be inaugurated this coming weekend on December 10th in Argentina. Where supporters of the right-wing outsider Javier Millet have been celebrating his victory in the presidential election. Mr. Millet, known as El Loco. And he won. He won big. He won going away in the Argentinian presidential election. Really a landslide uh, election, although Millet has suggested that people should be allowed to sell their own vital organs. Call him the madman, the wig. It's due to the floppy hair. He calls himself the lion and the an anarcho-capitalist on the campaign trail. On the brink of radical economic change following the election of libertarian Javier Millet. The self-branded anarcho-capitalist has vowed to scrap... Millet has referred to himself as not only a libertarian, but as an anarcho-capitalist. He has big plans for the country, sweeping reforms he wants to impose, including the abolition of the National Central Bank, the dollarization of the country's currency. It is a real libertarian fantasy that he's selling, uh, but it's soon to be reality, it seems. So we thought we'd dig into his program and what it promises for the country. So Adam, Javier Millet is, as I said, often referred to as a libertarian, but I wanted to get into the detail of what kind of libertarianism we're talking about here. He has apparently referred to Murray Rothbard, the American libertarian as a key to understanding his own thinking. And that seems to meld a kind of libertarian economics with a kind of reactionary social policy and even a kind of conservative approach to historical remembrance. And I'm wondering how those strands of thinking hang together into, yeah, whether that's coherent or not. Yeah, Millet truly is a character out of a almost a sort of surreal casting of modern politics. Apparently he has five giant cloned mastiff dogs, which are named respectively Milton Murray and I think Robert and Lucas, who all of whom are, you know, great eminences of conservative, neoclassical, rational expectations, economics. His libertarianism does seem to be the kind of streak that runs through his politics most deeply. I mean, I think perhaps amongst the dysfunction of Argentinian politics, you can kind of understand where that might be coming from at one level. Rothbard does seem to be the inspiration he cites most consistently. Rothbard himself is a really fascinating figure, born in the 1920s, died in the mid-1990s. 
somebody who made a kind of journey, I think, from a classically libertarian position, which is truly a kind of what anything goes kind of view, in which the central aim of your politics is simply to roll back the state, to a position in the 1980s in which Rothbard is embracing really what is essentially a reactionary social agenda. So you develop a theory of why it is that everything's gone wrong, not just that things are wrong and they need to be fixed. And so you blame sexual liberation, 1960s social policies and so on for the accretions of the state, which is your enemy. And so Rothbard ended up as a, a potential ally, anyway, of people like Pat Buchanan, who was running on the right wing of the Republican Party in the 1990s. And I think this is where I think... Uh, by all accounts, Millet really gets most of his inspiration. Rothbard was also one of the early exponents of a right-wing libertarianism that pilloried the ruling elite of the United States that began to see the United States as a sort of liberal elite conspiracy at the expense of ordinary Americans. All of this appeals very strongly to Millet, who speaks in very similar terms about the way in which the Argentinian elite has pillaged the country through inflation, through the manipulation of the state. He, he's, re he's realistic, as far as one can speak of him being realistic, in saying that he's less an anarchist or a paleo-libertarian than a mini-archist. In other words, he believes in making the state as small as possible. Some people may have seen the YouTube clips of him you know, dismantling an organigram of the Argentinian state and tossing elements of the state in the trash. He also, I think, campaigned with a chainsaw at one point, which was one of the tools that he was planning to use. I think, broadly speaking, you could say that Millet fits in the kind of Reaganite, ultra-Reaganite, Chicago boy kind of corner rather than in the MAGA kind of feel. Because in a sense, with Trump, despite the temptation, you know, to compare the hairstyles or whatever, I mean, Trump in the end is a kind of a power state guy. And Millet seems to be genuinely more committed to actually retrenching the Argentinian state apparatus. So yeah, let's get into some of the policies he is planning to pursue. As I mentioned, he wants to disband Argentina's central bank. His claim there is that the bank has been overly politicized, that it's not independent in the way that we like to think of central banks as being. So is, is there truth to that claim? Has Argentina's central bank failed to act independently? Well, the bank, the central bank of Argentina was established uh, in the 1930s and has since then accumulated a track record of unique policy failure, I think you'd have to say, in terms of in the inflation rate. If that's ultimately what independence is supposed to secure, the ability of central bankers to constrain inflation in the face of political demands. I mean, if they weren't subservient to politics, they'd have some pretty serious questions to answer because uh, for 43 of the 46 years between 1945 and 1991, and 20 out of the 22 years between 2002 and 2023, Argentina had an inflation rate higher than 10%. And no country in the world matches that. The hiatus in between, between 91 and 2002, is a period where Argentina didn't pursue an independent monetary policy, but pegged its currency to the dollar and thereby essentially subordinated itself to uh, US monetary policy. So for all of those years, well, on 80 years since uh, 1945, the central bank monetary policy regime in Argentina has just simply failed to constrain inflation. And that's a unique consistency of high inflation. And 
then if it is, in fact, fails to be independent, I mean, how does that get expressed? I mean, I'm just curious, does the government put pressure on the central bank or is it just a matter of the personnel they, they assign to and the central bank? And shrinking from doing the awful things that would be necessary to stop the inflation, right? So it could simply be that the situation is such that the central bank is terrified of raising the interest rate and constricting credit and desperately concerned about the impact on politically important interest groups if it were to do so and doesn't feel it has the political backing to make those kind of moves. So you don't even need, though there's no doubt, plenty of opportunity for direct influence, but you don't even need the direct influence. You just simply need the sense that the policy elite is not, in the end, willing to pay the price for anti-inflation credibility. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here, and we'll be back in a second to continue talking about Argentina's newly elected president, Javier Malay. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're anything like me, you're juggling a lot of things in your life. Work, kids, any semblance of a social life. And if there's one thing you wish for, it's more time. Maybe you've heard the advice that I've gotten, which is prioritize. Decide on the things that are really important. Well, how are you supposed to do that exactly? I think that's a fair response. And I think... That's where therapy comes in. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who have experienced major trauma. It's for people who have experienced life. Life is hard. We all need help. The only difference is some people are willing to ask for it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash ones, twos. So I'm here to talk about CrashPlan, which is a provider of cloud-based backup services for your computer. As always, when you support our sponsors, you're also supporting us, but you are also helping yourself out. Go to CrashPlan.com slash ones to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one, get one offers. So what does CrashPlan do? Well, their work in the world is to protect your work in the world. You know, just ask yourself, how much are your ideas worth? Whether it's a term paper you're working on, or a book, or a business plan, or an audio file, like the one I'm recording right now. Whatever it is, you've worked hard to create it, and now you can protect all your work with an unlimited backup and recovery solution with options for everyone from solo creators to growing businesses. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud every 15 minutes. When something happens to your file, whether it's a hard drive crash or your cat knocked a cup of coffee onto your laptop or even just an accidental file deletion, that happens too. Either way, your files 
are just a few clicks away. Crash Plan makes it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, Crash Plan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Don't let data disasters slow you down. Crash Plan has your back and keeps you moving. So go to crashplan.com slash ones, O-N-E-S, to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited time buy one, get one offers for ones and twos listeners exclusively. That's crashplan.com slash ones. Back up better with Crash Plan. So the centerpiece of Millet's agenda and his plan to combat inflation is to dollarize Argentina's currency, basically peg the currency directly to the U.S. dollar, basically outsourcing monetary policy to the U.S. Federal Reserve. And I'm curious, have other countries pursued that policy and and what's been their experience and what kind of light might that shed on, on what Argentina is facing. So yeah, three other Latin American countries, Ecuador, El Salvador and Panama have experimented with dollarization. Argentina is much the largest economy to be even considering this. They are considering it because the inflation situation is catastrophic. I mean, the you cited the inflation number 140%. The way this translates itself into exchange rates is that the black market rate is over a thousand pesos per dollar versus the official rate of 364. So there's a huge amount of informal currency trading that goes on. Argentina is in a profoundly dysfunctional situation. And the last time its monetary policy produced a degree of stability over a long period of time was when it was pegged to the dollar. That's in the 90s and the early 2000s after a period of catastrophic inflation. And the advocates of dollarization say, just look at what's actually happening in reality, which is that there are probably, according to estimates by Argentinian economists, something like $200 billion in dollar bills stashed away by Argentina's by no means desperate middle class and upper middle class, quite affluent. If you ever get to visit Buenos Aires or something like that, you you get a distinct impression of of a high functioning and relatively affluent society, which lives to a very large extent on wealth, which is protected against the inflation, which is ripping up the peso price system by informally holding their wealth in dollars. And so if that's the case, then the question that The Central Bank of Argentina has barely any reserves and Argentina therefore doesn't have the necessary dollars is really an illusion. The dollars are there. The question is, how do you bring them out into the market? And the reason why people won't spend those dollars is they don't want to trade them in for worthless pesos at the current rate. So if you went to full dollarization, that spending power, that wealth would in fact emerge. Is the sort of rhetoric, is the other kind of arguments being offered by the advocates for dollarization? There's no question that it would provide an anchor But what it does do is strip you of sovereignty. And the risk of doing that from the point of view of Argentina are two things. A, is America's monetary policy suitable for your economy? And of course, the advocates of dollarization say, well, it might not be, but the alternative here is not an optimal monetary policy, but an Argentinian economic policy. And those have been pretty terrible for the Argentinian economy. So we'd be better off choosing the second best of just tying ourselves to the U.S., But if you are going to go with this in the long run, you have basically to wager that the Argentinian economy in the short run will not suffer too terrible damage and in the long run will be able to adjust 
to function as an annex, essentially, of the U.S. economy, which is possible, but it's a wager, and it's a sign of how desperate Argentina is they'd be even considering it. It's a little bit like Italy's choice to join the euro, for instance. It's a gamble that in the end you can achieve productive convergence at the price of abandoning monetary sovereignty. So it's also a judgment on your own ability to exercise that sovereignty. And the other experience which Argentina has had is if you go towards this kind of policy, but don't actually establish 100, 110%, 120% credibility, what you risk is that people don't believe that you're actually going to stick on the dollarization or on the peg. And if that's the case, people begin to anticipate that the peg will break, in which case the currency will devalue, you get capital flight, you get a huge pressure on the economy as capital drains out because people anticipate the peg breaking. At some point, you then have to let the peg go. Crisis, chaos ensues, which is the disaster of Argentina's first dollarization experiment, which ended with the you know president having to be helicoptered out of the presidential mansion, massive rioting, dozens of people dying. I mean, it was a true catastrophe at the beginning of the 2000s in Argentina. So Millet's gamble essentially is, well, first of all, to say, look, we just have demonstrated ourselves incapable of conducting a national economic policy. A second best is a better option. We may in the long run be able to converge with the US. And the only way to make that course safe is to go whole hog and just go for full dollarization. That's the only way to go. And it's not as big a heavier lift as you imagine, because de facto, the Argentinian middle and upper class has already done a kind of citizen's dollarization that's already in place. And this is the I think that's the case for making this kind of argument. The only conditions under which you do it are indeed the extraordinary serious situation that Argentina finds itself in. I mean, in. there would be transition costs too, right? Absolutely. I mean, in the, in the yeah. literal switch, I, I would imagine... Those are relatively... If you okay. see how Argentina currently functions, okay. it would be a price worth paying. Apart from anything else, the Argentinian currency, when I was there last year, is not even denominated at the right units. So you have to pay for things in just infeasibly large stacks. The largest denomination bill is like five, $5 or something. So a hotel bill is like a huge stack. If you stay for three or four days, you literally have to... It was, for me, a kind of Weimar Republic experience of actually carrying small plastic bags of banknotes around. So Millet also talks about widespread privatizations of state assets to help, I guess, reduce the debt that the country has. And I'm curious what assets are really at issue here and who would the likely buyers then even be? So I did a, I mean, you know, not being a leading expert on Argentina's national industrial sector. It's never I stopped of, you before. I Googled, oh no, it's, it's never, never stopped, stopped me before. You. Oh, thanks, Ken. <laughs> no. So I, like, I Googled, I Googled as you do, and I got myself the list. And I can't really... I can't really see, um, I mean, what you see there is railway companies and bits and pieces in, what, in the remnants of the manufacturing sector, but above all, it's YPF, the national oil company. And that, I think, is really the prize asset here. And it was established as the world's first national oil company outside the Soviet Union in the early 1920s. So it's an icon of Argentina's um, national economic development programs. It's, you know, really underpinned Argentina's drive for national economic development in the mid-century. It was privatized under President Menem in the 90s in the period of dollarization. So the, the, after the end of the military dictatorship and the hyperinflationary period, privatizing the oil company was one of the big moves of the 90s. It was sold to Spain's Repsol. 
which became the owner. And then under the Peronists, under President Cristina Fernando de Kirchner, it was renationalized in 2012. And I think when Millet talks about privatizing, this is what he's talking about. Now, you don't think of Argentina as a huge oil producer, unlike Brazil, for instance, with Petrobras. But the real issue here is the potential of really gigantic shale oil reserves in Argentina. So there's been a recent discovery in Patagonia of Santa Cruz, but the, the biggie is the Vaca Muerta shale field, which is the second largest shale gas reserve in the world. So this, from the point of view of climate policy, is a ticking bomb. If Argentina sells YPF into the private sector with a view to essentially licensing a giant shale gas development, it is terrible news for global climate policy. I know my friends in the German Green Party here are very concerned about this development, thinking about how Europe might collaborate with Latin America in trying to achieve sustainable development. And uh, Millet, amongst other things, is not a climate skeptic in the sense he doesn't deny that climate change is happening, but he is quote-unquote open-minded, I think, on the issue of anthropocenic climate change. So he is a worry from the point of view of um, sane climate policy. So if what we're really talking about here is a privatized drive for massive shale development, it's a disaster um, for global climate policy. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask how to contextualize this kind of radical program and, and, and its effects. And, you know, obviously, Malay was just elected and quite decisively in this national election. And I wonder, given all the damage you're describing potentially coming from his economic program, I mean, do we still need to concede that this program that he's offering, that it has democratic legitimacy? I mean, so long as he follows Argentina's constitutional rules from here on out, um, and he does what he promises, and he follows the basic rules, is none of this a democratic problem per se? How, how to think about that issue? Well, Millet on democracy is a complicated issue in its own right, to be honest, because another one of the real issues, as in Brazil with Bolsonaro, is his relationship to Argentina's particularly bloody political past and the military dictatorship, notably the 76 to 83 period is one on which he has, again, expressed a deeply ambiguous position. And this was a dictatorship which um, disappeared, quote-unquote, over about 30,000 political opponents under truly gruesome conditions. He's tried to relativise that, to describe Argentina as having been in a state of civil war. He's tried to minimise the numbers. So as in the case of Bolsonaro... In Brazil, there is this concern about how Millet actually relates to the democratization of Argentina. In the short run, what matters far more than anything else is though he's been elected as president, his party, La Libertad de Advanza, has a very weak position in Congress. And Argentinian politics is driven by the coalitions that you can build in Congress. This was always the issue with the Peronists as well. And with lacking a nationwide organization and everything else, he holds uh, only 39 seats in the lower house. And in the Senate, which only elects a third of its members every two years, his party only has eight out of 72 seats. So I think the analysis of this is that though he won by a surprisingly large margin in the second round of the presidential elections, he's actually probably one of the weaker presidents to have taken office in Argentina's history and is facing a truly you know, horrendous economic situation. We haven't even spoken about the debt. You know, Argentina is in a running negotiation, renegotiation of its debts with the IMF. And um, that combined with the uh, 
with the inflation situation puts him in a doesn't put him in a box, I think, but it certainly puts him in a very difficult position right from the very start. Yeah, I guess finally, I wanted to ask yeah, a more general question, which is that anarcho-capitalists, again, which is what Millet refers to himself as, I mean, they've run small territories before. I, I'm thinking of like, you know, free trade zones or other entrepots. You know, I, I'm thinking of Quinn Slobodian's recent book that talked about kind of capitalist zones around the world. But yeah, I mean, small territories do seem different than a, a large country like Argentina. I mean, is there a qualitative difference in the nature of politics and economics between small and, and large countries? It's really, it's really sort of a staggering idea because Argentina is a very big, very complicated society. It's also, if you visit, like it's strikingly well governed by all, you know, by all, I mean, just the appearance of, of traversing Buenos Aires. It's a... Uh, struck me as really quite a conservative feeling big city i mean it has a population in argentina in total a population of 45 45 million which makes it larger than any american state it's the eighth largest country in the world by sheer scale divided into 23 federated states i mean it's very difficult when you, i watched millet like do this thing of like disposing of one ministry after another you know you felt the populist culture wars energy of somebody who just wanted to get rid of the social affairs ministry and the environmental mental but you were left feeling like do you understand the complexity of your own society do you understand the the demands of government and the you know the libertarian idea is that this all can somehow be reduced to a series of private contracts but it's it clearly won't work as a as a proposition. It's it's nonsense. That you could do various types of privatization, various types of public private partnership. All of this, of course, has been tried and tested. It's often turns out to be more expensive and less efficient as a way of governing big societies. But um, yeah, it's. I think my betting would be that very little of this program actually ever gets implemented. I mean, he's having a very hard time to find anyone who'll take the job of central bank, you know, to lead the central bank within, you know, under the remit of his economic policy. I think, the, as with Bolsonaro, it's quite likely that in due course, you know, a, a, a radical signing program has the edges knocked off it. But um, Argentina's different. You know, it's not just it's not just a large country. It has a truly unique track record of economic policy dysfunction that, um, well, be very interesting to see what comes next. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what comes next, but we're going to have to end the conversation here for now, and we'll be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com. Or you can tweet us. That's at once and twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. <laughs>